this morning. I've entitled this, Where Your Treasure Is, There Will Your Heart Be Also. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And um, I want to give you a little background to our Paul read uh, in verses, our text is 11 through 15. Um, but working up to that, there was a dispute in chapter 1. And um, they were arguing who's the better speaker? Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it Peter? And some were saying, no, it's the Lord, of course. And in chapter one, he's scolding them. He said, we're nobody. We're just instruments. And that's why in verse one of chapter three, he says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, because you're babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you're still carnal. For where there's envy and strife and division among you, are you not carnal and behave like mere men? For one says, well, I'm of Apollo and I'm of Paul, and uh, are you not carnal? In verse six, he explains that um, in witnessing to people, um, Paul said, well, I planted, I sowed the seeds, and then Apollos came along and watered the seeds, and um, so that it gave the increase. But we're, nobody, we're just ordinary men. We made a point of this a couple of weeks ago um, with not many wise, where God purposely chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So here we got these fishermen up from Galilee that the Lord picks, including a tax collector, <laughs> who is the most hated of all in Israel, And then in verse six, even though that's true, that they are just instruments, at the same time in verse eight we read, now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. So as they're serving the Lord, they acknowledge that they're really nobody. But nevertheless, there's coming a time Uh, when they are going to be rewarded for their service to the Lord. With that being said, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Ask the question, where are they going to be rewarded? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just two verses, 9 and 10. Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent to be well-pleasing to him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad now I'm going to repeat this a couple times this morning unless I misunderstood when it talks you're going to receive things whether they're good things or bad things we know that when Jesus died on a cross, he said, Tetelestai, or it is finished. It says, your sin and my sin um, will never ever be brought up again. It's separated as far as the east is from the west. Good place for an amen. He says, you will never be put to shame. 
So when it says whether good or bad, sin is not a part of this equation. That's not what's being meant here. What's being meant, and I'll mention this a couple times this morning, is the motive of why you did what you did for the Lord. And we'll develop that thought a little bit more. So if it says in verse eight, you can go back to um, uh, 1 Corinthians. And and it says in verse eight, each one will be rewarded according to his own labor. Um, He just in verse 10 says, according to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one takes heed how he builds on it. Now these verses here, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, uh, let me say this for starters. I believed that um, when we were in Athens, uh, we visited the amphitheater where the first Olympic Games took place. And I have a personal conviction that Paul was into it because of the analogy that he himself uses. He says things like, I've finished the race, I've I've run the race and it's finished and I'm almost home. And I think actually Paul might have sat in on a couple couple, uh, uh, Olympic Games. (laughs) Oh, and three. We haven't been playing our players yet. Let me talk about the judgment seat of Christ and what it really is. It's also referred to as the Bema judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word Bema translated judgment seat in the King James Version was a familiar term to the people of Paul's day. Dr. Lehman Strauss writes, in the large Olympic arenas, there was an elevated seat on which the judge of the contest sat. After the contest was over, the successful competitors would assemble before the bima to receive their rewards or crowns. The bima was not a judicial bench where someone was condemned. It was a reward seat. Likewise, The judgment seat of Christ is not a judicial bench. The Christian life is a race, and the divine umpire is watching every contestant. After the church has run her course, he will gather every member before the bima for the purpose of examining each one and giving the proper reward to each. Examining. And we have here... um, uh, especially in Revelation when John sees him, he sees these eyes of fire. And we've been making the point between the different, two different kinds of judgment. If you're taking notes, there's the one in Matthew 7 says, judge not and you won't be judged. And uh, why? And in that context, it is because I don't know why you do what you do. You do, but nobody else does. They would have to be able to read your mind and read your heart to know your motive for doing that. So, who can do that? Only the Lord can do that. Only the Lord knows through these penetrating eyes, saying eyes, the motive of our heart. 
And then last week on Wednesday night, we were reading where it says the spiritual man judges all things. Well, Dwight, you can't have it both ways. Well, that's because it's not both ways. One has the the idea of judging a person's motive of why they're doing what they're doing. The other one is the spiritual man judges all things. Now we're talking about discernment. Now we're talking about being able to determine whether a ministry or an organization or a purpose is biblically sound in what they're doing. And in order for me to make that distinction, first of all, I gotta know what this book says about that particular issue. And then I have to make a judgment. And um, there's a lot of, what did the Lord say in Matthew 24, one of the biggest signs, false prophets, false teachers, um, teaching things that they should not. Um, Our measuring stick, our line of judgment is this book. If it goes contrary to the book, the book is right and their doctrine is wrong. Another good place for an amen. These days, it's becoming more and more prevalent for false teachers, false doctrine, uh, from the prosperity movement to the uh, new apostolic reformation, um, to the gospel coalition, that has basically dumbed down the gospel of Jesus Christ to nothing more than social programs. And that is not what the gospel is all about. Um, I've heard people say that if Jesus was here today, uh, he'd be riding around Lincoln Continental. (laughs) And I'm thinking, no, I think it was a white donkey that he came riding down on. (laughs) And he would say things like, well, you know, the birds of the air, they have nests. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When they wanted to know about paying taxes, um, he asked for a coin. Why did he ask for a coin? Because I don't think he had one for himself. And he says, whose image is on it? They said, Caesar's. All right, pay your taxes. Render to Caesar, what's Caesar? But you render to God, What's God's? And that's what this study really is all about. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be also. And so we're, and don't get me wrong, we have to work, we have to provide. Nothing wrong with driving cars. Um, um, And of course, uh, taking good care of your family. Matter of fact, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. There's a whole lot of young people today that I'd like to talk to about that. <laughs> Let's see, should I stay at home and get 20 bucks an hour or go to work and work for 15? And that's sort of the mentality that a lot of them are having. And the work ethic is completely shot. And um, that's not being passed down to them. All right, um, just a couple other facts about the, the Bema Seat judgment that's mentioned in the scriptures. This is from... Uh, Romans 14, if you're taking notes. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you set at naught your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, let every one of us 
shall give an account of himself to God. Where does this take place? At the Bema Seat Judgment, where he's the only one who will be able to accurately um, know the motive of why we do what we do. All right, that brings us to our text this morning. As we make our way through Corinthians, let's pick it up where Paul is reading verse 11. And we'll read 11 through 13. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stone, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort that it is. And um, the two analogies here, of course, um, um, you can melt gold, but you can't make it go away. And you can reshape it. Uh, Same with silver and precious stones. But wood, hay, and straw are very susceptible to any fire, and it doesn't take long before they are gone. Um, As we think about different areas of this um, and how the Lord might apply them at the judgment or beam and seed of Christ, some of them might have to do with how we treat other brothers. Um, In Hebrews 6 it says, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have showed towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints, and you do so now. And he goes on, he that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever shall give to drink of one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord, verily I say to you, he shall in no wise lose your reward. You want to start storing up some treasure in heaven? Get yourself a whole bunch of glasses and water and go around. I'm giving you this in Jesus' name. I'm giving you this in Jesus' name. I'm giving you this in Jesus' name. Paul, Greek Mall, who's out in Montana right now, he came out here every other week just to hand me a glass of water. And I just said, you're just selfish. I'm seeing right through you. I know what you're doing. And we'd get a good laugh out of it. Another is how we exercise authority over another. It says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself to them for they watch for your souls as they must give an account. Well, where? Well, at the Bema Seat Judgment that they may do it with joy and not with grief. If you're taking notes, that's Hebrews 13, verse 17. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter six, and let's develop again the idea of motive and our service for the Lord. We read Matthew six, verses one through four, He says, take heed how you do your charitable deeds. That would be another way of saying doing your works for the Lord. Take heed how you do it. Uh, Before men, to be seen by them. 
Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, do your charitable deeds. Don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites in a synagogue or in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your father who sees in secret himself will reward you openly. Again, it's a matter of wanting attention and um, um, wanting people to know that uh, you're doing something. Well, the Lord's basically got reward there. But if you do it in such a way um, that nobody knows except you and the Lord, um, sometimes things are in the back of my head. I, I, I think, should I say it or not? I'm going to say it. Some of the guys that aren't going to be able to get away with this are our ushers, our faithful ushers. They have to walk by you every Sunday morning as they hand you this, and they're doing it as unto the Lord, but everybody is seeing them do it. Sorry, guys, I hope you get your reward, but you know. (laughs) I mean, there's just some things you can't help, right? Um, But there are things that you can. And um, here, it clearly tells us how we should go about doing this because the day is coming. The Lord is a very good bookkeeper and he's not missing anything, even to the giving to a glass of water. All right, let's go to chapter six, verses um, 19 to 21. And this is where I get the title for our study this, this, uh, this morning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the idea here is Um, only being interested in material things that you treasure. Now let's face it, if you're not born again, that's really all you're really interested in in life. I like to call it stuff. I mean, there's expensive stuff, and then there's um, goodwill stuff, and then there's rummage sale stuff, but it all falls under a category from a, a cheap thing you got at Goodwill to a $70,000 Corvette, you know, and anything in between, but it's all stuff. And what we're being told here, eventually, it's going to rust or wear out, and you can't take it with you when you die anyway. And to drive this point home, I want to use examples that people try to bring some sort of faction into their life. And to do that, I want to go to the wisest man according to the Bible, whoever lived besides Jesus, and have you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. 
he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. In men's prayer, we just finished the book of Song of Solomon yesterday, which he also wrote. And he also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter one, he pretty much expresses in these two verses um, the whole of the book. Verse one of chapter one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then if you jump over, of course I'm not gonna go through the whole book of Ecclesiastes, but I think you'll get the point as we just point out some of the things that he had the ability and the wisdom to check out for himself. I mean, this guy had, this is the only other place 666 appears in scriptures besides uh, Revelation 13, but annually he had 666 talents of gold that came into his coffers. Let that sink in for a second. So not only did he have all this wisdom, he was the wealthiest man who probably ever lived. In chapter two, uh, first three verses, pleasure. Um, There's many different forms of pleasure from um, physical to sexual. As far as sexual goes, Solomon had 700 wives. 700 wives? (laughs) And then 300 concubines. I think he had a big, I think he uh, had a strong sex drive. Chapter two, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with myrrh, and therefore I'm gonna enjoy pleasure. So under the category of pleasure, just fill in the blank what you might think it is. But he says, surely this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of myrrh, what does it accomplish? I searched to my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, why guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under all the days of their life. And the rest of the book, he gets into areas where you pretty much say he's tried it all. So if we, we'll just, again, I can only point out a couple. Let's go to um, verses, chapter two, verses four through 11. And this is the emptiness or the vanity of having great accomplishments. I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pots from which to water, the growing trees of the grove. I inquired male and female servants. I had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and especial treasures of kings. I always scratch my head on that one. And of the province, I acquired male and female uh, singers, uh, the light of the sons of men, 
and musical instruments of all kind. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem and my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart rejoiced in all my labors and in this was my reward for all the labor. But then I looked at all my works and all my, that I had done with my hands and all the labor in which I had toiled and indeed it was vanity grasping for the wind and there was no profit under the sun. In other words, he wasn't find any satisfaction with all these things that we just listed. It, wasn't, it just wasn't doing it for him. Turn to chapter five. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. But it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money is amoral. Is everybody with me with that? It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. We were talking in the back about how these Americans are really getting out. They're being bought out with American dollars. That's how they're getting them out. And so it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. So here... Um, he talks about wealth, and we're, he's the wealthiest man probably who ever lived. Chapter five, um, drawing your attention to verses 10 and 12. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. And he who loves abundance with increased, this also is Vanity. When goods increased, they increased to eat them. So what profit has the owner except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Whenever you put in a good hard day's work, you get a good night's sleep. Whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. How many people who are millionaires toss back and forth all night wondering if their money is safe and how can, I, how can I protect it even more. What Solomon is saying here is it preoccupies your mind so you can't get a good night's sleep and the guy who puts in a good hard day at work, he's sleeping like a log. And um, so he sees the, the futility in all this and he's saying wealth just doesn't cut it. Wealth does not satisfy. Ask any millionaire, how much is enough? And the answer is always, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Let's go to chapter six and look at verses um, one and two. Again, no satisfaction in wealth. We'll just look at the um, first two verses here. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and it is an evil affliction. So no satisfaction in wealth. And I could go on and on and on, but if I would sum it up, I would go back to chapter one and read 
The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. He wasn't satisfied with anything, and he tried everything. The number one rock and roll song of all time was written, and the drummer of this band, uh, Charlie Watt, died this week at the age of 80. Uh, He was a drummer for the Rolling Stones. And I, from time to time, like to Google top 100 songs of all time. For many, many years, the number one selling song of all times was written by the Stones, and it's called, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried. And I Googled it again, and um, for, the, for the top 10, and it's dropped to number three. And I'm not sure what one and two is now, but for many, many years, because let's face it, this is a 60s type song. And believe me, the stones look like they're 80 years old. <laughs> Some of you young people have no idea what I'm talking about right now. Google it. But ask yourself the question, why would this song, be the number one song of all time? And the answer is, is because everybody can identify with it. Self-identification. I identify with that song because I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried this, I've tried that, and it's empty. It's vanity. It doesn't bring any satisfaction. And that's why, it had a pretty good catchy lyric to it, but it was really the words that people identified with it wasn't there the wisest man the richest man the man who could do it all and have it all came up with the same conclusion it's simply not there and as a result Solomon after going through the whole book let's go to the very last chapter the last two verses he has a suggestion and he says in chapter 12 verses 13 and 14 Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is a whole duty of man. Why? For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, or at least what you think is secret, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We left off with verse 13. Now let's look at verses 14 and 15. These works, if done with the right motive, are gold, silver, and precious stones. They remain, you get your reward. Wrong motive, you did it before men to be seen by men, is wood, straw, and hay, and it will not remain. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that salvation has nothing to do with your works. Let's say you lived your whole Christian life and it was a very self-centered, and you really did no works. And the works that you did do, you did for the wrong reason. 
Um, but he's still a born again Christian and it tells me here he's still gonna be saved, yet as though through fire. Now I don't think he's gonna be too disappointed when he gets to heaven. (laughs) He might just go, made it. (laughs) Um, But he's not gonna have a lot to show for the time that he spent during this brief little time from the day of your birth slash day of your death. And what did you do? Where did you invest it? Wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. So if you're wise, like Solomon, you'll come up with the same conclusions. That this is all emptiness, vanity. I've never seen um, a U-Haul truck behind a hearse in my life. (laughs) Never. Never seen it once. When you're gone and gone and you're taking nothing with you. But I like to say at this point, even though that's true, it doesn't mean you can't send it ahead. And where is that gonna be revealed? At the Bema seat judgment. So in verses 14 and 15, I'm gonna have you turn to um, the Gospel of Mark at this time, chapter 10, and draw your verse attention to verse 23. Mark 10, verse 23. Again, a little recap on the difficulties and distractions of riches. The Lord's going to comment on it in these four verses here. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So everybody always wonders, what is the eye of a needle? And what is that referring to? Nobody really knows for sure, but it is true that when you enter some of the gates in Jerusalem, uh, they can call it the Jaffa Gate or the, um, um, the, the gate called the Dung Gate and the Eastern Gate. And the idea here is if you had too much luggage on your camel, you couldn't get through it because they actually called that the eye of a needle. Now, I don't know if that's what the Lord is referring to here or not. I don't think he's referring to um, um, taking a meat grinder and grinding that camel up so he's so small that you can stick the pieces through the eye of a needle. I'm pretty sure that's not the case either. But whatever he's saying, he's making the point, it's a hard thing to do. And they were astonished beyond words at this saying, well, then they said, well, who then can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now there's a good amen place. With God, all things are possible, rich or poor. All right, then Peter began to say he felt a little on the defensive here because he had nothing. The biggest business day in Simon Peter's life was when the Lord said uh, after giving a Bible study, he was sitting in Peter's boat, in John's boat, and they'd been fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing, and Jesus was done with the Bible study, 
And he said, uh, let's, let's push out. Let's go fishing, boys. And he said, Lord, we've been fishing all night long. We haven't caught a thing. But nevertheless, at your word, we'll do it. So they went out, threw the net over the side of the boat, and there were so many fish that they had to ask another boat to come alongside because their boat was going down because the catch was so great. So they bring it ashore, and then Jesus said, follow me. The biggest business day in his life he was walking away from. He had never caught that many fish before. And that's when the Lord said, follow me. And he did. And so here, Peter is thinking back on that, I think, in verse 28. Then Peter began to say, see, we have left all to follow you. And Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospel who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And um, there are very many prominent well-known men like Franklin Graham. I got to meet Franklin one time as he spoke at our conference. And um, of course, I wanted to talk to him. And I said, I bet you've heard this a million times, but it was because of your dad that I got saved. And he says, you're right, I have heard that a million times. (laughs) And he says, but I thank you um, for saying it anyway. Well, he's very, very well known. Well, I know a lot of very, very spiritually minded, totally dedicated beyond words, not only in Haiti, but primarily in India. If you become a Christian in India, especially in the north, in the south, Kerala, um, um, Bangalore, in Kanataka, Tamil Nadu, and Tenkazi, more Christians down there. But they consider the mission field in the north. And in order to, to go up there, and I've been up there many times teaching in and um, inductive Bible study. Um, in order to plant a church in these days, this would have been in the 90s, you had to give a commitment that when you're done with your Bible school, that you will go to a village where the gospel has never been preached. And then you're gonna stay there the rest of your life. Otherwise, you can't go to Bible school. Now, when it says the first will be last and the last will be first here, well, everybody knows Billy Graham. But I know people that, I, that are so dedicated and committed. I mean, literally, if I was teaching, they were like this. I'm serious. They were taking it in that much. And their commitment is, uh, it was humbling for me, being an American Christian. And um, the things that we take for granted, and we do, we take a lot of things for granted, uh, not these guys. When it says count the cost, they count the cost. And so I think these are going to be the guys um, that are going to be first. And maybe some of the more f- famous American preachers aren't going to be that far up the list. Um, and another one of those things in the back of my head again. Before Chuck retired, 
we rented the Anaheim Convention Center. And um, he was going to go on the road with Love Song for his last big hurrah, okay? So this event was specially for Chuck. And um, he had given a Bible study in the morning about Caleb um, being in his 80s when he got into the land he wanted to go where the giants were and take on the giants. And I was in church. Um, Richie, was, Richie Frey was playing at the concert that night, so I was with, with Richie, and all of Love Song was there, and all these very well-known Christian musicians were all at this event um, providing the music. And the Bible study that he gave in the morning when Chuck finally came out, it was the same Bible study that I heard in the evening. And I actually asked him afterwards, I said, Chuck, I was in church this morning, and I know you're in your 80s, and I know that Caleb was in his 80s. Were you given that Bible study for yourself? And he just gave me one of those little Chuck grin and wink things. But when they finally introduced him, and here's the reason I'm telling this story, uh, the people wouldn't sit down. They wouldn't quit clapping. He couldn't get them to sit down for nothing. And when he finally did, he goes like this. Well, thanks a lot. You just moved me from maybe roll 13 in heaven to 97 because of all that's applauding that's going on right now. Everybody get what I'm saying? He was getting his rewards now, and he's saying, sit down, shut up, you know. <laughs> I don't want it now. All right. Um, Mark 10, verses 23. Um, Many that are first will be last, and the last will be first. Um, There is an Old Testament picture that I'll begin to close up with. I'll do this and ask you to turn to Philippians while I'm telling this Old Testament story. I do believe for every New Testament teaching there is an Old Testament picture. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Boaz and Ruth, okay? And let me start it out by saying this. Ruth was a Gentile. Boaz was a Jew, okay? Now, a passage which can be very easily applied to the Bema Seat Judgment can be found in the words of Boaz as a foreshadowing of Christ, he's Jewish, to Ruth, a foreshadowing of the church, she's Gentile, when it says, and this is Boaz speaking to Ruth, when he says to her, it has been fully been shown me all that thou hast done. That would have been for Naomi. And now the Lord recompense your word, Work, and may a full reward be given to you of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou hast come to trust. She could have went home. Her husband died. And Ruth said, I'm going with you. Your God's gonna be my God. Where you dwell, that's where I'm gonna dwell. And um, Naomi wouldn't argue with her and she provided for Naomi. And so I do see the the type 
of uh, the Lord is gonna be our husband. He's Jewish. Most of us here are all Gentiles and we're the bride of Christ. And we're gonna be recompensed or repaid at the Bema Seat Judgment and the Judgment um, uh, Seat of Christ. We will close with Philippians and while I'm turning there so that um, I don't forget what this Bible study is all about. I've had this sign in my office for as long as I've been there. I look at it almost every day. You probably know what I'm gonna say because I say it all the time. And it's well said and it's only a couple of words. Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And then underneath it is the scripture, Philippians 1, verse 21. And I'm gonna read 21 to 23 in closing this morning. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit. In other words, if I keep going down here, it's just gonna be more fruit for me later. For my labor, yet I, I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. How about a good amen there? As crazy as this world is, I want out. Now, sooner the better. Having said that, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The longer we're here, we have an opportunity to be an influence in people's lives. And that's what Paul is saying here. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. But basically what he's saying, if I had my my choice, I want to go home. And that's basically uh, what he's saying. He wants to uh, produce more fruit while he's here. So if, going back to the title of our message this morning, which is where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. And if we look at it in the context of a husband and wife um, marriage, uh, Tom, uh, last Sunday I wasn't here because I was doing a wedding for his son Seth up in Kadat, Wisconsin. He comes up to me one day and he says, Dwight, have you ever heard of Kadat, Wisconsin? My first memories in life, all my family are from Kadat, Wisconsin. And it's 1,437 people big. And it's famous for this. It is halfway between the North Pole and the equator. So that's Kadat's claim for fame. And my, truly, my very first memories in life were in Kadat, Wisconsin. And I was telling Tom, he asked me, do you know what Kadat is? I just broke out laughing. I said, are you, are you kidding me? So that's why I wasn't here last week. So with that being said, let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, if you're not number one in our heart and we're trying to find satisfaction in anything besides you, We repent, and um, we want you to be our treasure. You are our dwelling place, and only you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, can fill up that empty void that is in every person's heart that has never accepted you. So in closing, Lord Jesus, I pray 
for any that have never accepted you personally and that they've tried everything but have come up empty. Let them know, Holy Spirit, that um, you give the peace that passes human understanding and um, you bring about true satisfaction. In Jesus' name, amen.